Before we get started this morning, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us as we come to your word and study your word this morning. We acknowledge that we are too often cold-hearted, spiritually deaf, and spiritually blind to your truth. As a matter of fact, we are doomed to that apart from your Spirit's work in our lives. So we ask that this morning that you will move mightily in us and help us to see what only you can make us see. Help us to hear what only you can make us hear. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to recognize your truth for what it really is and draw us close. Bring us close to worship. Transform us. Rescue us from the hopelessness that is our world and rescue us into the kingdom of light for your glory. In your name I pray, amen. Well, two weeks ago, I obviously was not here last week, so two weeks ago we wrapped up the book of Acts. So we, I, I debated back and forth with today uh, if we were going to just do a review of the book of Acts or if we wanted to get into our next study and I decided I wanted to get into our next study because I've been itching to get into the study for probably a good 10 years, if not more. I've touched on the study uh, numerous times. I've mentioned it. I've referenced it. I've referred to it. But I have not probed it, um, at least in a sermon setting before. So, uh, no, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're looking through the Sermon on the Mount, cha- Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Uh, we obviously will not go 5 through 7 today. Um, we won't even make it through 5 today. Uh, but we will, uh, we will take our time and work our way through this text. Uh, before we get there, a couple things. Um, number one, Jim, I just want to thank you for your uh, confession this morning. I really appreciated that. It reminded me of my run last week. Um, as you were talking about mowing, it reminded me of my run. Many of you know I was gone last week because I was running my first post-COVID marathon, and uh, it was 89 degrees at mile 18, and by the time the finish line showed up, it was 91 degrees. Uh, Needless to say, those of you who work out in the sun, you know what the sun can do to your energy level, Um, and certainly it zapped me, and all I could think of uh, the whole time was the very thing you were talking about, and the first all I was thinking about was Okay, Steve, just keep, keep focused on the finish line. You'll get there eventually. Just keep moving along. You'll be there. Just keep moving towards the finish line. Watch out. Yeah, but watch out for potholes, exactly. But at the same time, it was so tempting to throw in the towel. It was so tempting just to quit. Um, because, I mean, my, my energy was gone. Because the last eight miles was all in the sun. There was no shade for eight miles, and it was just, it was devastating. Um, so, in any case... Uh, it was, it was, I would just bring that up to say at first I was just thinking about it, I just got to get to the finish line, just got to get to the finish line. But then as I'm thinking about it, I just got to get to the finish line, it'll be over, I'll have nice cold water and, and be able to get a lot of food in me, that type of thing. Then I started thinking about it and yeah, the spiritual point of it, of, you know, God has promised that life as a believer is not easy. Life as a believer is a race. It's a lifelong race from the time we are converted to the time that, that the Spirit rescues us and opens our eyes to see to the time when we go to glory. It is a war. It is a battle continuously. <clears throat> and there are always temptations, are there not, to throw in the towel, to be sidetracked, to get caught up in other things. I am reminded, even when I was running, I was reminded of, of um, 
Christian as he was moving his way in Pilgrim's Progress, as he was moving his way toward the celestial city. And, and all of a sudden, there off to the left was uh, a place, a city called Vanity Fair. And it was not in Reading and an outlet mall. It's a, it was a city in the storyline. But all of its wares were just wares of vanity. But how easy it was to be tempted and to be deceived and to be sucked away from the goal of the celestial city. And that is exactly what I was experiencing in a physical way. And it was just a really neat reminder uh, Sunday when I was struggling with the lack of energy and the exhaustion and the overheated, being overheated and all the rest. I just kept thinking, you know, this is just such a perfect picture. When, you know, the scriptures tell us repeatedly to run the race. So the race isn't easy. And there will be temptations and pitfalls everywhere, or potholes, as you said. There will be pitfalls and temptations everywhere that, that desperately want to sidetrack us, and they will be attractive to us. And they will look really sweet. But they are not. They are just full deception. And it was just a really interesting picture, so thank you. That was really good. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 5. I chose not to review Matthew, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1 through 28 this morning. Maybe someday we will, maybe we won't. Um, but I would challenge you, even though we are done with Acts chapter 1 through 28, I would encourage you and exhort you not to lay it aside. You are not done with that book. You never will be, just like any book we study. You're never done with that. Uh, it is important that we make sure and reinforce what we have learned in our thinking, in our hearts, and uh, continue to remind ourselves of that. The book of Acts should never be new to you again. Just like when we went through Philippians or when we went through Mark or John or any other book we've gone through. When, we, when we've gone through it, it should never be new to you again. Oh, new things as we continue to learn, but it should never be new to you again. Um, we should always, and we should feel very comfortable in the time we've spent be able to work our way through those places again prayerfully and by the Spirit as we consider the truth. And so with that in mind, we're not going to revisit and discuss and work through uh, the 28 chapters in a discussion format uh, at this point in time. Again, we've done that in the past some, but I really want to get into uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Matt, starting in Matthew chapter 5 and concluding, actually, we could start, we, we'll actually start in 423 because it sets the, st uh, the, the storyline. But before we get there, let me just say a few things about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, first, let me just say this. As we talk about the book of Matthew, uh, there are certain stories in the book of Matthew that for most Christians, if you think about Matthew, they tend to be front and center. I would say the Sermon on the Mount ought to be, but it is not. There are numerous things in, numerous stories in the book of Matthew that is obviously the, um, we all know about the genealogies, for example, in Matthew, at least basically. We all know about the crucifixion account in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We all know about the resurrection account in all four Gospels as well. Uh, and then there's uh, several apocalyptic or end times prophecies, Matthew 24 through 26. We're actually going to reference one of those this morning, Lord willing. So many of us know about those, although even those have been misunderstood a lot. Um, I'm not going to mention what those misunderstandings are at this point because they're just sidetracks. But be that as it may, there are numerous stories in Matthew that we all know. 
when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, typically the only part of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through 7, that we really know is the first 13 verses. Those are the typical ones. There's little bits and pieces we know, but the typical ones are the things in Matthew 5, 1 through 13, which are known commonly as, does anybody know? The Beatitudes. That's, is that if, if, if just hearing Matthew 5, 1 through 13 doesn't ring a bell to you, then the term the Beatitudes ought to most likely ring a bell to most people. So before we get into the storyline of, of Matthew or the sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount in 5 through 7, I want to lay a couple, a couple little groundwork pieces of data for you to help you understand. First, Matthew 5 through 7 is very much a transitional passage. It's very, in fact, it is probably one of the most crucial transitional passages in the, the entire Gospel of Matthew. It changes the storyline dramatically, and it starts actually in verse, verse 17, but then it, 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 what happens in verse 17 where, where it says, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the last statement of Jesus, well, we get a statement in verse 19 um, as well, but, but realistically, when he calls, some, uh, calls uh, specific people to come to him, but realistically, what he's going to do from uh, 5.1 through 7 is he's going to transition from what took place pre-verse 17 of chapter 4 and everything that takes place after chapter 7. So it's a, again a big transition up to this point in time. He's been doing miracles. He's been he's been uh, doing all sorts of things like that. But starting in verse 17, he starts as it says, preaching, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." But in five through seven, what we find is what Jesus is going to do in five through seven is he's going to lay out, and this is why the transition is so important. He's going to lay out why this transition is taking place. He's going to explain why the transition is taking place in His ministry. He's going, to change, he's going to explain to everybody why they need to repent. He's going to explain to everybody how the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what's going to happen. He's going to explain that transition in 5-7 through seven in His sermon. And then from there, everything He does from chapter 8 all the way through to His crucifixion and resurrection is going to be based upon His message of 5-7. through seven. you get the sense that chapters 5-7, through seven, the Sermon on the Mount, is important? I would take it so far as to say if you don't understand Matthew 5-7, through seven, the Sermon on the Mount, you will not understand the rest of Matthew. You will not. That's how important it absolutely is. I will add to that statement one more statement. And the next statement may be a little bit jarring. Almost universally, people get 5-7 through seven wrong. I know that's a bold statement. But almost universally, they get 5-7 through seven wrong. Christians do. Students of the Scriptures do. They make it something it is not. As a matter of fact, especially the passage we have today, verses 1 through, 13, 1 through 12, actually, I'm sorry, I said 13, 1 through 12. When you mess up 1 through 12 of chapter 5, you will by default have to mess up 5, 13 through 7, and in effect, mess up 
the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. As a matter of fact, I will argue you will mess up not only that, but you will mess up the rest of the New Testament. In fact, I will say you will mess up all the, all the Scriptures if you mess up 5, 1 through 12. And Christians historically have messed up 5, 1 through 12. I did for many decades. I'm 62 years old. I use many decades. I can use that legitimately. So hopefully this morning we're going to understand chapter 5, 1 through 12, the intro to uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, hopefully we'll understand it by the end of the study or at least get a better grip on it. Here's what we're going to do in our study. We're going to read through it first, and then after we read through it, we're going to explain a few things. And then once we explain a few things, we're going to bring it all together so that we can get understanding and how it, the Sermon on the Mount, at least this part of the Sermon on the Mount, 1 through 12, how it's supposed to be understood and how it's supposed to work. Because I think it's very important we figure this out uh, appropriately. So. so first let's read it, and then we'll work our way through it. Starting in verse 23 of chapter 4. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction from among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and, he brought, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And, a great, and great clouds followed him from Galilee, and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Verse 1 of chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. I just want to pause on that, because 23 of chapter 4 through 1 of chapter 5 give the background to the story, that, or the sermon that's about to uh, unfold. So you'll notice that he's traveling all through the northern part of Israel. And he's preaching in synagogues and he's teaching in synagogues. And he's doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And of course, the gospel of the kingdom is summed up ultimately in the kingdom king. Right? The king of the kingdom is where the gospel of the kingdom points toward. Now in this case, the gospel of the kingdom um, is going to be, I would argue, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is preaching is primarily going to be focused on what do you think? The law. And you'll see that I think in just a little bit. Because you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. The gospel means what? Good news. But is the law good news? No, the law is not good news. Why? Why is the law not good news? Because you can't measure up to the law. So by definition, the law message is a bad news message. It is a message that shows you you are doomed, you are hopeless, you cannot faithfully keep the law. And we're going to develop that a little further yet. Uh, but you now understand, you need to understand this, and that is this, that in order for the good news of the gospel to come, the bad news must be there first. Without bad news, there is no good news. 
The good news, in other words, gets built upon the bad news. So Jesus is traveling throughout Galilee. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And, the same, and one other part about the gospel of the kingdom is the promise, right? The promise that there will be a redeemer sent to redeem God's people from their sins being exposed by the law. Good, we got it. He comes and the text in chapter 4 tells us that one of the big things he's doing as he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom is what is he doing? He's healing people from disease, afflictions, and then he talks about diseases again, pains, people uh, oppressed by demons, people having seizures, paralytics. He's healing these people. So boatloads of people are getting healed. What's the big deal? Is it because Jesus wants to be known as the big healer? A great physician? No, because it was promised that this would happen when the Messiah would come. So what he's doing in all of his healings is demonstrating that the gospel of the kingdom, firstly, based upon the bad news of the law, secondly, the good news that there is going to be someone coming that is going to fulfill the law, and set his people free from the consequences of the law. And that person, when he comes, will be healing people physically. That's what the Old Testament promises. So he's doing that here. So he's giving two parts of the equation, is he not? The bad news, the law. The good news, the fulfillment of the promise of a Redeemer. So he's demonstrating both of those and teaching both of them. That brings us to the end of chapter 4. He shows up in Galilee... And he's somewhere on the north end of Galilee. <clears throat> Most people think they know which mountain he's on, and it wouldn't surprise me if they're right on this. Um, but be that as it may, he's on a mountain somewhere, and the crowds are following him. You get the sense there's a big crowd following him. Do you not in the text? And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people so that his fame spread throughout all of Syria. And they're coming to him. Correct? And he's teaching them. That brings us to verse 1 of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds. There's a massive crowd on the side of this mountain. He goes up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So in other words, the crowds are there. Jesus goes up higher on the mountain. The crowds are below him. In other words, the crowds are going towards the Sea of Galilee on this mountain. He goes up higher than the crowds. He sits down. And then his disciples come and they get up real close to him. Got the picture? Now it is interesting, if I may just say this as an aside, the place they think was this mountain is very intriguing. Just from a purely physical standpoint. Because you think about it, if there's a vast crowd here. They don't have PA systems. And yet Jesus spoke to the crowd. And they heard him. It is interesting, the place that they think on the north side of Galilee where Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount, you could actually have a massive crowd there and you could stand up high on the mountain and speak and everyone will hear you. Just because of the acoustics of, of the surrounding mountain. And it carries straight down the mountain. On the other hand, if you're down low on the mountain and speaking up, it doesn't. But if you're up high, it travels down. And, it, and everyone would be able to hear you. No matter how many people are there, they'd all be able to hear you. It's really a wild, I've been there, and it's really weird because it really is true. Be that as it may, he sits down, his disciples come to him, and then he begins to speak. Verse 2. 
It says simply in verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, the, the only thing I want to point out in verse 2, as he opens his mouth and teaches them, the them he's referencing here is not just his disciples. He's teaching everyone, disciples up close and all the crowds all the way down the mountain. He's teaching all of them. The reason why I point that out is because later on, oftentimes the crowd's there, but Jesus is only teaching who? Only teaching the disciples. Now, the people can hear if they're close enough, but he's really only teaching the disciples. But here, the them is referring to all of them. And from here, verse 2 all the way through verse uh, 11, and 12 is included in 11, we have what has historically been called the Beatitudes. There are nine of them. Although, as we work our way through the nine, you'll notice the last two are in agreement with one another. They're not two separate ones. They're more like a redefinition of the same one. So you have eight of what has been traditionally called Beatitudes. So you'll see them, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. Each verse has one. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, and then verse 10, 11 are two, but they're one. I just want to point out, so there's really eight, although there are nine. You'll notice that in each verse, and again, we're just trying to gather data at this point in time, in each verse there is a statement. And it's important to recognize the statement. In each case, the statement is a descriptor. A descriptor of a certain type of person. I don't want to get too far into the weeds of talking about each one of them, but we are going to try to address them. So I want to go through the data, if you don't mind, if you work with me on this, I want to go through the data on each one of these just really briefly to get an idea of each one. Most times when people speak on the passage, this is primarily where they spend their time, talking about what each one means, and I don't think that that's really the point. So let's just briefly touch on each one. Verse 3. The descriptor is the person who is poor in spirit. The person who is poor in spirit. Now, you're going to find out real quickly on all these, although I'm not going to mention specific passages, you're going to find very quickly, if you're thinking very much at all, that each one of these is dramatically tied back to two books of the Old Testament. I'm not going to give you any passages because there's just way too many. But they are primarily, each one of these are primarily tied to the book of Deuteronomy. That's really important. That is absolutely important. Each one of the descriptors are tied to the book of Deuteronomy. And I'll explain a bit why that's absolutely important. They're also tied to the book of Psalms. Secondarily but yet at the same time also important. Because in a very real way, the songs that are contained in the Hebrew Psalter that we call the book of Psalms are descriptors that are tied back to Deuteronomy. They're describing the person of the descriptions of, verse, of, of, of Deuteronomy. So we come to verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. So the first descriptor is the poor in spirit. And it begs the question, what is someone who is poor in spirit? And let me just submit to you, whatever you heard about poor in spirit, it probably is not what it means. 
When it says poor in spirit, when Jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit, He's referencing someone who has spent time in the book of Deuteronomy. He's referencing someone who spent time reading the law. Studying the law. But not merely someone who has studied the law. In Deuteronomy. It's not that simple. Someone who is poor in spirit, and I would argue that verse 3 is the all-embracing one, by the way. The person who is poor in spirit is not the someone who has studied and knows the book of Deuteronomy very well. In other words, what I'm saying is he's not talking about the Pharisees. They certainly were students of the book of Deuteronomy. What he's talking about is this person who has studied the book of Deuteronomy and they are absolutely undone by it. They are absolutely destroyed by it. And why would somebody, that begs the question, why would somebody who studies the book of Deuteronomy faithfully and accurately studies the book of Deuteronomy, why would they they be absolutely wrecked by that study and undone by it? Because they can't what? They can't measure up. They can't keep it. We'll talk about that in a little bit. That's the person who is poor in spirit. Does that make sense? The person that is poor in spirit is not uh, anything else that people have tried to dredge up that it means. It means simply they've been in the Word, they've been in the law, they studied the law, they have perceived the requirements of the law, and at the end of the day, at the end of the moment, at the end of the month, at the end of the year, at the end of the decade, at the end of their life, they know. They know. If I may take it away from the law for a second, it'd be, it'd be like saying, it'd be like referring it as a descriptor to the one who is poor in wallet. Get the picture? If you're poor in wallet, what does that mean? You have nothing there. There's no money. There's no credit cards. There's no anything, right? You may have a wallet, but there's nothing there. It's just a piece of leather that means nothing. No matter how hard you worked, no matter what you did, at the end of the day, there is nothing there. You're poor in wallet. Get the picture? Poor in spirit means there's nothing there. There's nothing good there. That's what it means. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. The the descriptor we have in verse 4 is mourn. A describing of a person who mourns. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that I occasionally mourn. I suspect all of us have in our lifetime. Occasionally mourn. Could I just submit to you? That's not what he's talking about. That's not at all what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is something much more significant than that. 
The one who is mourning in this text, firstly, is the one who is just like we saw in verse 3. This is really important. I didn't mention it, but I want to now. Just like we see in verse 3, this poor in spirit is an ongoing poorness in spirit, isn't it? Not a moment in time. It's a continuous, just like pouring the wallet. Always pouring the wallet. Not just the end of the month. Always. The one being referenced in verse 3 is someone who characteristically at all times is poor in spirit. Verse 4, same thing. Blessed are those who mourn. Is referring to someone who is continually mourning. Forever and always continually in a state of grief and mourning. All the time. Why? Why would someone possibly be in that kind of a state of mourning all the time? Well, the answer is quite simple. The reason why they're mourning all the time is because they're poor in spirit all the time. If you're poor in spirit all the time, you're always going to be mourning over being poor in spirit. Those go together. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, he says. We're not going to... work on the blessed part yet but blessed are the meek so the description we have in verse 5 is the meek there's a, a certain type of person that jesus is describing here that person is someone who is meek he's not occasionally meek he's what always and characterized continually by being meek meek in contrast to being Boastful and prideful. He's meek. He understands his place. Where does he understand his place from? The exposure to the law. As a result, he's meek. He has nothing to bring to the table. Verse 6. The descriptor he gives in verse 6 is someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That's the descriptor given. A person Jesus is talking about that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Now, just as we saw in verse 3, 4, and 5, in verse 6, we've got to be careful because we can get off the rails very quickly. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> you don't have to answer it out loud. I just want you to answer this in your, in your own mind. Has there ever been a point in time in your own life where you hungered and thirsted for righteousness' sake? I suspect if you're a Christian, that would, it better be true. <laughs> right? At the same time, let me ask you a second question. Again, don't answer out loud because I don't want you to embarrass yourself. But I want you to ask yourself this question. Just like we saw in verse four, five, or 3, 4, 5, and 6, in verse 7, let me ask you this question. I'm sorry, in, in verse 6, let me ask you this question. Are you someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness' sake continually? characteristically it's the 
dominating feature of your life. That's who he's talking about. He's talking about, he's describing, he's giving a descriptor of a person who absolutely, I'm trying to use my words very carefully, absolutely, characteristically, and continuously hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That's the descriptor. Verse 7. The descriptor he gives is merciful. He's describing a person who is merciful. Now we need to drag 3, 4, 5, and 6 into it again. Not that we've been merciful once or twice. Not that we helped the old lady across the street and we were merciful to her. Not that we cared for a lost puppy dog somewhere. But we demonstrated mercy characteristically. Mercy, by the way, is in contrast to justice. Not opposite of justice, but it is mercy is, is where we show, show we, we treat someone kindly that doesn't deserve it at all. Get the picture? Someone who doesn't deserve any kindness at all and we treat them kindly. And in, in, the, in the passage, as he describes the mer- this person who is merciful, he's talking again about somebody who is absolutely, characteristically merciful. It's an absolute characteristic. Verse 8. The descriptor he gives in verse 8 gets really painful, doesn't it? Pure in heart. Jesus gives a descriptor of this person he's referencing, and he says about this person, this person descriptively, my my description, God's description of him, is a pure in heart. Now, if you found anything, verse verse 3, 4, 5, 6, Seven that you could say, well, that's me descriptively. I would tell you you're wrong. But even if you could lie your, to yourself in three, four, five, six, and seven, you're not going to escape verse eight. You are not, because frankly, even as saved people, there's never been a moment in our lives, not one moment where we were pure in heart. We are sinners continually. As Calvin said, our heart is a factory of idols. It's manufacturing idols for us to worship all the time. Even the best of my moments, I can't help it. I sin. Praise God that He doesn't reveal all those to me. But I am a sinner continually. I fail Him continually. I dishonor Him. I don't keep His law continually. Pure in heart. Now, understanding that God God is saying this, right? This is Jesus God saying this. So we can't say pure from yours and my definition of pure. Pure is from God's perspective of pure. As God's understanding of pure. 
Is God pure? That's the standard. And so his description here is of a person who is pure in heart. That's nobody. Verse 9. Now I would argue none of them are anybody at this point. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Again, we're ignoring the blessed part. I'm just reading the beginning of the text. So the descriptor he gives in verse 9 is a peacemaker. There's this, this person he's describing who is a peacemaker. That means that the characteristic, the absolute characteristic of his life is someone who brings peace into situations. Now we need to understand a couple things here because it can, we can really get off the rails in a number of ways on this one. Because you can think that appeasement is what? Is peace. Right? If I can just appease and cool down, then I'm a peacemaker, right? Even though there's still conflict there, if I can just cool them down, and, and, and if I can just appease them both, then we'll have peace. No, that's not peace. Remember, peace is God's standard of peace. Not my standard of peace. And so it's, under, it's important that we, we, we look at peace from God's standard. And so what he's saying here is that the person he's describing is a peacemaker from God's standpoint of bringing peace. A peacemaker, in other words, brings peace that looks like God's peace. God's type of peace. Does that make sense? That's the type of peace that person brings. Do I need to say in verse 10, do I even need to say that's not us? Right? I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a guy who loves creating turmoil or you like having just everybody loving one another. That's not you. In any way. <clears throat> verse 10. There's a shift. 3 through 9 are all about internal characteristics, isn't it? That demonstrate itself outwardly. Verse 10 changes because it's no longer looking at internal characteristics. Now it's looking on external things. And it's things that you and I have no control over. It's things that happen to a person. So the descriptor that Jesus gives in 10 and 11 are descriptors of outward, foreign alien onto the person that he's describing. Does that make sense? So verse 10, this person he describes as being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 11, he describes them as being reviled. When others revile you, when others persecute you, when others utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Got it? Got the picture? So it's external alien things being applied to the person. And those are the things we just described. But I want you to notice the person he's describing as these external things coming upon this person are two, in verse 11, he has two qualifiers. 
Do you see the two qualifiers? The first one is against you falsely. And secondly, on my, Jesus says, on Jesus' account. You see those two qualifiers? Those are very important qualifiers. It's one thing if somebody persecutes you and utters all kinds of evil against you and it's not false. Correct? We know that's not what he's talking about. It's not, he's, he's not talking about persecuting you and utter all kinds of evil because of your account. Instead, it's, it's being uttered against you falsely on Jesus' account. In verse 11, he takes it further. In verse, in verse 11, I'm sorry, that is 11, I'm sorry. Um, verse 10 um, gives us another qualifier. And they're persecuted. Notice what they're persecuted for. For righteousness sake. Now when it says for righteousness sake, you have to recognize that that statement for righteousness sake in verse 10 is connecting back to what? Verses 3 through 9 descriptors. In other words, verse 10 and 11 are external people's responses to a person who is faithfully 3 through 9. Make sense? So these externals are because of 3 through 9. The persecution, the reviling, the hatred, and all the rest. The false statements. Uttering all kinds of evil against you. All those things are because 3 through 9 are you. Now we've already established that 3 through 9 are not you. And 3 through 9 are not me. Does that make sense so far? Are we all on the same page? So therefore, 10 and 11 also is not me, nor is it you. Correct? Now that's very different already from what most people say about verses 1 through 12 of chapter 5. I'm going to add one more equation to this, these, all these descriptors in bulk. Okay? It's very important I give this to you. I'm now going to pull verses 3 through 12 together and make one statement. Not only are any of these statements that Jesus make about or, or describing you, they're not a descriptor of you, they're not a descriptor of me. Not only that, but they can't be. They can't. What I mean by that is the law makes it very clear that you can't measure up. The law makes it very clear that you can't faithfully and completely keep the law. What do I mean by that? Well, what is God's standard for keeping the law? We talked about it Monday at men's Bible study. Absolute perfection. That's His standard. 
Does he have a second standard and a third standard and a fourth standard and a fifth standard and a sixth standard? Does he have any lower standards? No, he only has one standard. And it's absolute perfection. That is it. Either you measure up or you don't. And everyone falls in the same category and it's not they do. Everyone falls in the same category and the category they fall into is they don't. Never have, never will. Now once we understand that, then we have to understand what is typically done with this passage is 180 degrees out of phase with what Jesus is trying to communicate. Here's what typically happens with this passage, and 99.9% .9 of pastors and theologians will do this. And it's demonstrated just in the history of it. Where do we start out? What's the passage called? Historically? The Beatitudes. And the point of calling them the Beatitudes is because what everybody just about universally says about the text is this. This text tells us what we ought to do or be. That's why it's called the Beatitudes. You, probably just as good to call it the Do-attitudes. But the Beatitudes kind of rolls off your, finger, your, your tongue a little bit better. But even calling it the Beatitudes implies this is what we ought to be or do. But that's not the point of the text. That's not what Jesus intended to communicate. What was he preaching? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, right? And in the midst of preaching the kingdom of heaven, what was he calling for? The big R word? Repent! Why? Because they can't measure up to God's standard. Perfection. So what's going on in the text? Well, let's go back to verse 3 again. He opened, verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who, persecuted, uh, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What is the grand theme that he's presenting in contrast to the grand theme that isn't so grand that almost universally is presented? What is almost universally presented is this. If I may revert to the old Steve from way back when I preached it a long, long time ago before I came to Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, then Vincent Baptist Church, when I was still at Word of Life, and I preached it this way. God calls us to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, to be persecuted. That's God's command for us. You know what the problem with that is? You've heard me say it before. 
These are not commands. There's no commands found in this text. But almost everybody who preaches and teaches on the text talks about it from the perspective of this is what we need to do. Now there is another group of people who argue that this has nothing to do with the church age anyway. This is just the kingdom age that has yet to come, which is equally bad. If not even worse. I won't even get into that one right now. There are no commands in the text. It's not there. Listen to it again. I'm just going to read verse 3 because it repeats itself every time. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the command? I don't care how hard you try. It's not there. As a matter of fact, I would submit to you, you can look at any translation, even bad ones. And it's not there. It just isn't. And if you look at the Greek, it really isn't there. There's no command. There's not even an implied command. Jesus here is not talking about to the people who are hearing them on hearing him on the mountain north of Galilee. He is not commanding them to do anything. Jesus is talking about some sort of grand conclusion. That's the text. The text is really clear. Listen to it. Verse 3, for example. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the grand conclusion? Receiving the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's the point of it. The point of it is not what you've got to do. The point of it is what you're going to receive. Does that make sense? And every single verse is the same. It's the description. You have two descriptors. The first descriptor, descriptor is the person. The second descriptor is what they're going to receive. The focus is upon what they're going to receive. And that thing that they're going to receive, the last statement in each verse that they're going to receive is connected inexorably to the very first statement in each verse. As a matter of fact, the very first word of each verse. The blessing of verse 3 is they're going to receive the kingdom of heaven. The, the blessing of verse 4 is they're going to be comforted. The blessing of verse 5 is they're going to inherit the earth. The blessing of verse 6 is that they will be satisfied. The blessing of verse 7 is that they're going to receive mercy. The blessing of verse 8 is they shall see God. The blessing of verse 9 is that they shall be called sons of God. The blessing of verse 10 is they're going to receive once again the kingdom of heaven. The blessing of verse 11 is their reward is going to be great in what? In heaven. Do you see it? That's, that's the text as I've just broken it down to you. What in the world is going on here? Well, a couple things. First, we've got to ask ourselves, what in the world is Jesus doing here? What Jesus is doing here is He's speaking about the law. Remember the kingdom of, of heaven that He was preaching about. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
that statement in verse 17 is absolutely key. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, you have first, if you break down the book of Deuteronomy, you first of all have this statement for about five chapters of a history of God and His, and His love towards His people. And then from chapter 6, although there's a little bit more of the history in there, from 6 through about chapter 22 or so, you have the law given. It's the law proper presented. There it is. Law after law after law after law. In, ver- in chapter 6, it gives the, the, the central command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. After the laws are given by Moses in his two weeks of messages before they enter the promised land, Moses, after he completes that section on the law, after that, he says, now, you have the law, and now you need to understand. Now that you have the law, and you understand God's standard, you need to understand it's your task to what? Keep the law. And by the way, if you keep the law, you will what? You will be blessed. That's what he says. You will be blessed. If you keep it from God's idea of keeping, and if you keep it at God's standard of keeping, you will be blessed. And then he goes on for a couple chapters and lays out what those blessings are. And they are eerily connected to chapter 5. That's very important. You can't miss it. The connection between the blessings of Deuteronomy and chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 of these blessings. This is such a tight summation of the blessing sections of Deuteronomy. And after he finished out his discussion on blessings towards the people, after that, what does he tell them next? However, if you don't keep the law at God's standard level, absolute perfection, the result is going to be, instead of blessings, it's going to be curses. And he describes for several chapters what the curses are. And by the way, they are horrifying. And they, have phys- they are physical curses, but they have very much eternal and spiritual meanings, which is so often the case in the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus, in His Sermon on the Mount, as we've called it, is saying something, because in Deuteronomy... During that blessing section, what, 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 what Moses said, being led by the Holy Spirit, being borne along by the Holy Spirit, as Peter describes it, he says, there will come a time of blessing for those who perfectly keep the law. There will come a time where those of you who perfectly keep the law will receive your blessing. Now, that concept that is presented by Moses helps us understand another concept that we see in the Gospels. And that is that Jesus came in the blank of time. What's the word? Fullness of time. What is this referring to? The fullness of time. 
What he's talking about when he says he came in the fullness of time, it's referencing back to the blessings and cursings that were were talked about and promised in Deuteronomy. There will come a time. And and Moses is specific about it. It's a time. It is a specific time. It will come and blessings and cursings will be meted out. There will be all sorts of intermediate stuff going on. And we know that was the case, right? All the way through the Old Testament. There was a whole lot of intermediate curses, weren't there? But there will come a time when the blessings and or curses will be meted out. When the Scriptures describe that Jesus came in the fullness of time, it's referring to the fullness of blessing and cursing. The time for blessing and curse has come. So when Jesus, in chapter 5, sits down on the mount and He begins to preach His sermon, and He says, blessed, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What He is saying is He's not commanding them to be poor in spirit. Quite to the contrary. You know what Jesus is really saying? If you're not up to this point in time, it's too late. That's what he's saying. If you, at this, up to this point in time, have not been, by God's standard, perfectly fulfilling the law and therefore poor in spirit, you're doomed. No blessing for you. Only curse. And we go down the whole thing. Every single one of them would be the same. This, in other words, what Jesus is saying is, this is the time that Moses talked about. This is the time of blessing. I am here to meet out the blessings that are promised by God. And so he speaks to the crowd that follows him, and he goes through this laundry list in this time to receive blessing. And in effect, what Jesus is saying, if this is you, come forward to receive your blessing. And how many people come forward? None. None come forward. Because they cannot. They cannot. And it's important that we understand. Because none can come forward for their blessing that was promised 2,000 years before, approximately, give or take. Because none can come forward and they're purely representative of all that those who have gone, gone before and have passed away. None can come forward and receive their blessing. Because of that, there's only thing, one thing left. And the one thing left is the curse. That is it. Those chapters of curses are all that's left. There is nothing left for them. The the blessing that Jesus is pronouncing, if I could say it no other way, it would be this way, the blessings that Jesus is pronouncing is received by no one. Not one single person 
the only thing that is left for these people are the curse. I would submit to you, we do brutal damage to this text when we miss that. When we try to make it be a text of what I need to do, I'm grossly in error. I need to let this text resonate in me. Because you know what I see when I think about this text? Here's what I see looking at the book of Matthew and the storyline from here on out. From this point onward, Jesus has his face towards Golgotha. You realize that? He has his face facing towards Golgotha. He's heading towards Calvary. It is inevitable. He knows it. The one and only person who's ever lived on this earth who was perfectly poor in spirit, mourned, meek, hungered and thirsted for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker, persecuted, ridiculed. The only one who perfectly was that was Jesus. And that is it. No one else. Ever. Only one person ever measured up to God's standard. And from here on out, all that's left for these people is the curse. And what does the one who is poor in spirit, mourns, is meek, hungers and thirsts after righteousness, is merciful, is pure in heart, is a peacemaker and who is persecuted, what does he do? According to the storyline of Matthew, he becomes, what does the Scripture say? The curse for us. He becomes the curse for those who are cursed. In other words, what that means is He takes on the curse. But He can't. He's all of this perfectly. He has to be blessed. It's God's standard. God promised that the one who perfectly keeps the law will be what? Will be blessed. He can't be cursed. He absolutely cannot in the same way that the people must be cursed and they cannot be blessed. Jesus can't be cursed. He has to be blessed. Except that He took on our sin. He became sin for us. He took on my sin. He wore my sin and yours to the tree. And He stood in our place. And He absorbed the wrath of God. He absorbed the curse in its full vent, its full fury for you and me. Amen? That's what He did. That's what He did. We who were cursed because we failed continually to keep the law, and in fact, couldn't keep the law. The one who perfectly kept the law came and stood in our place. But you know what's amazing? Even though Jesus did that and stood in our place, 
and absorbed the wrath, it wouldn't have cut it. Do you realize that? It would not have cut it. Wouldn't have made a bit of difference for you and me, except for one more thing. By itself, it made no difference. One more thing had to happen. And the Scriptures tell us that He put us in His place. He gave us His righteousness. He adopted us as sons, gave us His righteousness, grafted us into the vine so that we as true believers, if we are true believers, we wear His righteousness. We are judged not according to what we do, but according to what He has done. That's what it means when He says it is finished. We are judged not by what we do, even as believers, because all my righteousness is still what? Filthy rags. That's why Paul in Philippians 3 talks about an, a righteousness not my own, he says. And the most amazing thing is this. If He wore our sins and stood in our place and absorbed the wrath that belonged to you and I and gave us His righteousness and placed us in His place and satisfied the wrath of God, you know what that means? It means we're blessed. Do you realize that? It means we're blessed. It means, in other words, that theirs is the kingdom of God. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They, they shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. Do you hear the blessings? Are they resonating with, the, with our understanding of the Gospel? And the ramifications of the Gospel? Again, verse 10, there's the kingdom of God. Our reward is great in heaven. Do you hear it? But wait, you say, stop, Steve, back up the horses. You just said, even as Christians, we can't be perfectly poor in spirit, mourn, meek, and all the rest of these, right? We can't. So how is it possible that we could still be blessed? And I go back to it again. Because it is not up to the one who wills or works, but up to the one who what? Shows mercy. And He has shown mercy to His children who He has redeemed. And He's given us His righteousness. And because, according to Colossians 3, because our life is hid with Christ in God, you know what that means? Because our life is hidden with Christ in God and because He was poor in spirit, He mourned, He was meek, and on and on and on. It's as if you and I are. Do you realize that? It's as if you and I are, even though we're not. And the reason why is because in the judgment, Christ's righteousness is seen, not mine. And not yours. 
So firstly, this text should be a dramatic encouragement to those who deserve his wrath, and we do, every one of us. That we are blessed when we don't deserve it, mercy. And it should cause us extreme rejoicing, should it? Shouldn't that be expected? If we're truly believers, shouldn't that bring us to the heights of rejoicing? I would submit to you that when he talks about in chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the mourn, blessed are the meek, etc., everything changes when we're placed in God, in Christ's place and given his righteousness. Because in placing us in his place and giving us his righteousness, according to Ephesians 2, he's also given us a what? A new heart. And that new heart is a heart that longs after God. It longs after Christ. And if, if we have that new heart that longs after Christ, should we not expect that we will long to be poor in spirit? Wouldn't you expect that we would long to mourn? Wouldn't you expect that we would long to be meek? Wouldn't you expect that we would long to hunger and thirst for righteousness? And on and on and on. Wouldn't you expect that? It seems kind of incoherent to me that if he has done his work as described in the Scriptures, including giving us a new heart, making us alive, adopting us as sons, giving us his righteousness, that the ramification of that is we would love the one who stood in our place? Would that be expected? This is not a, this is what we got to do. I want you to hear me very clearly. I'm not talking about this is what we need to do because I don't think this is at all about doing. <laughs> at all. But wouldn't we expect that the spirit-awakened heart, that the spirit-awakened heart gratitude in that spirit-awakened heart would cause us to long for these things, at the same time mourn and grieve over those things because they're not us, correct? Not the side of glory. Would we not find this to start to evidence itself? Again, please don't miss me. I'm not telling us we need to be this, we need to do this. No, I'm saying this is what the Spirit does. This is what the Spirit does. in true children, in true believers. He changes us so that we desire this, knowing all along what? At the same time, knowing all along I fail continually. Knowing all along that sin is present within me. Romans chapter 7, the very things I know I ought to do, those are not the things that I do, and the very things that I know I should not do, those are the very things that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul says. And people are out there speaking heresy when they say that this is referring to someone before they were saved. Clearly in the text it is not. Oh, wretched man, who will set me free? In chapter 8, thanks be to God. Or end of 7, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 8, verse 1, I am not under what? Condemnation. Now, if that doesn't cause me to want to know him, I'm still dead in my trespasses and sins. 
if that does not cause me to want to know him and worship him and grieve over my sins and mourn and all the rest, at the same time rejoicing, pursuing, if it doesn't cause me internally by the Spirit, But this text is not about what we need to do. This text is exposing that we can't do it and we've missed the blessing and we need a Redeemer. Praise be to God in Christ Jesus. In the fullness of time, He came. In the fullness of time, He suffered and died in our place. And from here on out, throughout Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what we are going to see is we're going to see beauty and we're going to see the most horrific things we could possibly imagine. And then some. And the whole time, you know what we're going to see? A Redeemer. And our need for the Redeemer. And the mercy and graciousness of our Redeemer. So as we work our way through this text, let us rejoice. Don't be deceived. Don't get caught up into what I need to do because that's not the point anywhere. Not just in Matthew 5, 1 through, 1 through 12 but not anywhere in the Scriptures is the point of Christianity what I need to do. It's always what has been done. It's always what has been done. Or as I say, we have the, the statements of reality, the indicatives, and we have the imperatives, and the indicatives always inform the imperatives. Or the statements of reality, who Jesus is, what He's accomplished, what He's all about, what his, what his plans are, what His goals are, and everything else informs our understanding of the, of the commands and prohibitions of the Scriptures. The commands and prohibitions of the Scriptures are meaningless apart, apart from the declarations of who Jesus is. We absolutely need to recognize that. This is a, 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 a message of great rejoicing, but it's also a message of great grieving because the vast majority of people are missing it completely. Let us enjoy being blessed. We are blessed. In this already not yet time frame, we are blessed. There's something greater coming, but we are already in the kingdom of God. We have been ushered in. We are citizens of the kingdom. We don't yet know what we will be, John says, but one thing we know is we will be like that's yet to come. But in this interim, already not yet time frame, we are citizens of the kingdom. We have been forgiven. Wrath has been atoned for. Our sins have been dealt with. We have been set free. We are blessed. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us as we go from here that we will be careful to not be deceived into thinking what I've got to do. Instead, help us to understand the truth of what you have accomplished, what you have done. These are not beatitudes. They are just simply descriptors of you. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us to rejoice in our Redeemer. Knowing that the sin has been paid for, the debt has been dealt with, 
we have been set free. Sin, Satan, and death have been destroyed. They have no more power over us because you are a great God. Draw us close. Open our eyes to see. And not just to see, but to revel in, to rejoice greatly in our Redeemer. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?